Born in Canada on July 14, 1922, to the father of Scottish origins, Bill Millens moved to Glasgow when he was three years old. Bill joined the Territorial Army in Fort Williams, where his family had moved and played with the Pipes Band of the Highland Light Infantry and the Queen's Own Cameron Highlanders before volunteering as a commando and training with Levatt at Arcanary. Millens is best remembered for playing the pipes while under fire during the D-Day landings in Normandy. Pipers had traditionally been used in battle by both the Irish and the Scottish. However, the British Army had restricted the use of bagpipes to the rear areas by the time of World War II. Levatt, nevertheless, ignored these regulations and ordered 21-year-old Private Millen to play, telling Millen's, Ah, but that's the English War Office. You and I are both Scottish, and so that doesn't apply. Millen played Highland Laddie, The Road to the Isles, and All the Blue Bonnets Over the Border, as his comrades fell all around him on Sword Beach. Millen states that he later talked to a captured German sniper who claimed he did not shoot at him because he thought he had gone mad. Millens was the only man during the landings to wear a kilt. It was the same kilt that his father had worn in Flanders during World War I. He was armed only with his bagpipes and a black knife sheathed inside the kilt on the right-hand side. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. What's going on, everybody? It's another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. I want to change things up a little bit at the intro because it's not every day that you hear a modern-day punk song, if you will, about World War II and about one Billy Millens and his landing during D-Day with nothing but bagpipes and a knife. But joining us as always from Texas, Alabama, and our guest from Tennessee, Henry Sledge, Jeff Copsetta, and you may know him from War Stories podcast, Preston Stewart. Preston, how are you doing tonight, sir? Good well, thanks so much for the invite, man. Thanks for coming on, Jeff. Henry, how are you guys doing? I'm, I'm doing good, man. I, was, I thought we had some dropkick Murphys going on there for a minute. I was enjoying that. Very similar to Dropkick Murphys. I've yet to discover a World War II-based song. Yeah, probably, um, probably not. Probably not. There is, if you remember the keyboardist from Lincoln Park, he put out a little side project called Fort Minor, and he is of Japanese-American descent. And I think one of the songs we'll cover in the future, he did a song about the Japanese internment camps that came out like in mid-2000s. And so uh, there's definitely uh, content out there that we can we can talk about. But... um. As I said, joining us from the War Stories podcast, and I, I've discovered him on TikTok, Mr. Preston Stewart. Um, give us a little brief background on you, how you got into uh, military history. I know you graduated from West Point in 2009, but just to uh, let our audience know about you, uh, give us a little history on that. Yeah, grew up in uh, Champaign, Illinois. Um, was Spent a lot of time with my grandfather, who was in the Korean War on my mom's side, or in, in the Army during the period of the Korean War, so 1950s. And he had army stuff sitting around, so we just used to like to play with that. And he was big in the Civil War and always had great stories um, about military history. So just enjoyed that. Grew up watching the History Channel back when they were doing a lot of military history stuff. Back when they had uh, history. Yeah, it seems like it was a long time ago. But uh, that was the stuff I liked to watch. And then once I got out of college and, and could kind of choose the things I wanted to read, started reading more military history and just really enjoy it. It's, it's the thing that I choose to learn about now that I don't, you know, once you're done with school, you don't have to learn about anything. Um, that's the thing that I really like spending time doing. So um, a couple of years ago, started making content just as another way to learn more, have discussions like this right here and have the chance to interact with people who also have an interest in those topics. So started making short videos and that turned into a podcast and talk a little bit longer because a minute's not very long and and uh, yeah, has led to some awesome experiences like being on the podcast here and chatting with you guys. 
it's amazing how that works. Is um, I'm trying to get my daughter to read, and I was the same way in school. It's like I, I'm not interested in any of this nonsense. But once you start reading about things you enjoy, whether it's World War II or graphic novels or how to make Afghans, whatever it is, it just definitely makes everything so much more palatable. Yeah, for sure. Just whatever the thing is that that appeals to you, and I, I think that's kind of a challenge though because you don't have that choice until. <laughs> 18, 22, maybe later. Um, but yeah, finding that thing is important. You know, it's funny. I was in, I'm a pretty decent drawler, even having done it in a long time. And I remember when I got to high school and I joined art class, I was all excited until I realized art class, I had to draw what I was told to draw and how I was told to draw it and things like that, which it, it's like, how do you put regulation on someone's free form passion? I'm getting some feedback somewhere. Yeah, I do apologize. Thing about you know, I, I'm I'm an artist myself, and it's funny you say that because art class was the same thing for me. You know, I actually had an opportunity to design a billboard for the army recruiting uh, station at the town south of here, and but it was this is what we want, this is how we want it, and this is the timeline. And no, you, you got to feel like it. And the same thing even with with books. I mean, there's a subject that hits me, and there could be another great book that I I would love to read, but that's it's got to wait till I'm in the mood for, for that, you know, or that, that particular campaign. I think Henry's kind of the same way. So yes, that's yeah, funny. We're when you find a that. passion, run with it. Yeah. And I think all four of us, you know, we're, we all do podcasts. We all do about military history. I know Preston, you cover all ranges, you know, whereas we here, we stick with the world war two stuff and you pretty much cover everything. But um, we kind of got into this a few episodes back where we we're talking about how things are changing with, when it comes to publishing books, um, a lot of it is going to audio format and um, maybe digital format. And I've said before, um, in order to preserve history, I think it's super important that we keep it in, you know, at least our books in a hard copy format. But I think right now with the way people's attention spans are going and how they consume their information, I think what we do as far as audible format podcasting is all more important to help get that that message out there and to help educate people in the way in which they want to consume it. Yeah. I, I don't use TikTok to, to learn a lot of things when it comes to military history. There's yeah. little things I like for a minute here or there, but to me, 35 to 60 seconds is not usually what I'm looking for in those topics for maybe a quick recipe or something like that. Sure. But if that's how people are consuming information, then who am I to judge? Right. And, and I think, uh, I think similar with podcasts. Sure. There was a time where people said, don't put it on the big screen. It's got to be radio. It's got to be in a book. And no, we need those documentaries. We need those movies. They're great. So I think you're spot on. If it's changing, it's changing. Um, just kind of be where the attention is. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to change things up a little bit. We had a, we had a um, living historian on here a while back who does a lot of um, patent impressions. And we all know how people talk about Patton, how he's kind of a, you know, he's a little rough around the edges. He kind of, a little bit of a maverick. He was a little standoffish. And we, we all know about that. But I was reading this book, and I was kind of surprised to hear a little bit about Chesty Puller that way. Henry, Jeff, have you guys really heard that much about Chesty Puller being that kind of, he had a little bit of that Patton-esque um, attitude to him? Well, you got to know where I come from, man. I mean, my, my father was not a huge fan of Chester Puller. I mean, he was not in his battalion or later regiment, but, um, you know, I think, and that goes back to the Peleliu action, but. Well, and that's exactly what I'm reading, you know, Bill Ross's Peleliu and I don't want to yeah. get too dug down into it, but this is the first, you know, of all the PTO based stuff I've read, this is the first time I really heard this about Chesty Puller. And, um, just here on page, 212. Um, let's see here. The feeling seamlessly is becoming more prevalent as seniors of the battle pass into and beyond their middle ages. In case in point, First Lieutenant Gordon I. Swanson from Minneapolis was a 23 year old frontline artillery spotter on Peleliu. He was assigned to the 1st Marines and thus a frequent personnel contact with the Colonel. Polar seemed to me, Swanson wrote in 1988, although I once called him an arrogant ass, that was most unexpected by the First Lieutenant to a Colonel but it was a language which he understood and label which he wore with some pride. He always seemed to be uh, surrounded by more luck than good sense. 
His, ju his judgment was always questionable. When his book Marine came out off the press, he sent me one of the verse copies with a pleasant handwritten note and the flyleaf. I shall always treasure it. There will never be another chesty puller, an observation I make with a sense of gratefulness and relief. And it, it seems like people say that, especially on Pell Lou, that he was kind of, um, he kind of made some bad decisions that cost a lot of the, lot of the Marines in the 1st Marine Division their lives, whereas some of the other colonels maybe in that position would have been a little more delicate in the battle plannings to try to um, minimize the, the, the uh, casualties. Well, he was being pressured from... I mean, you're you're spot on, but that pressure was coming from above. Sorry, I'm trying to uh, while you yeah, guys. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out where the feedback's coming from. Yeah, that's so distracting. Um, tell you what, guys, let's take a quick break. I'm gonna pause this. Um, for those of you watching live, well, we'll just go with it. It's uh, I'm not sure where the. Uh, the break has come from but jeff you have a lot of experience with the pto have you really heard that much about pooler and kind of his his ability to just think on a dime and possibly put his guys into uh needlessly um dangerous situations yeah i mean we could all be we could all be armchair quarterbacks here i think it's just the thing to remember about any big personality like that is uh, if Swanson's the lieutenant that's kind of always on the, the colonel's coattails or, or you know, as a personal aide or, or, or things like that, or even just kind of reporting to him in, in, small, in, a, in a smaller environment, that lieutenant's not going to know every decision that, that Colonel Puller is having to make. He sure. doesn't understand a lot of the circumstances because guess what? It's not for him to know. Uh, he, he's going to be on a need-to-know basis. Uh, he's not, Puller's probably not going to want any feedback or pushback. This is it. This is why it is, or this is how it is. Don't ask why, you know, and not, not that I'm saying I'm defending Puller. Yeah, I have heard those similar things, but you, I think you're going to tend to hear more of those things from probably people who were either one in Swanson's position or two, your general basic buck private that doesn't know anything that's going on. And you, you're going to, you know, Gripes are, you know, he's going to gripe it to the guy that's that's leading the guys into the foray. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe Preston can, you know, from your I was a non commissioned officer. So maybe from your officer's experience, what do you think? You're spot on. It's um, we all can armchair quarterback at all the levels up. But, um, yeah, the lieutenant has no idea what a lieutenant colonel or colonel has to deal with and the other things at play. Um, we always think we do. Right. We always think we know exactly the right answer and they're doing it wrong. But in reality, we never have that full picture. I'd be interested to know how much of this was felt at the time versus after. Because I think with, you know, Polar was, this is going to make it sound worse maybe than I mean it, but there's a decision made in, in the press at times to say, this is going to be our hero. This is going to be our guy. And I think Polar was that at the time, especially after Guadalcanal, he was kind of a, a hero of the Marine Corps. And I wonder if, if stories of him were spun in a way to maintain that image, because the the idea that his troops didn't like him or he wasn't, um, they didn't have as much confidence in him in the field, that's not prevalent. I, I'm not surprised at all that it's out there because nobody's going to have all top marks, but I wonder how much of it was overblown to kind of build up his persona or maybe not brought to the surface when it could be. Yeah. That's a good point. And I, and I was, you said that, and I was looking through this book because they actually quoted, you know, kind of that was how the media personified Puller, you know, like, okay, he's kind of the patent of the PTO. We can give him this label. He's, he's our go-to guy. Um, he has that gung-ho spirit that we want the, the American people to, to think of when thinking of a Marine colonel. And I think you, you hit it precisely, and they're leading into that paragraph. There was a, a part in this book where they kind of made that comparison of, you know, he was just the the media's go-to guy with trying to uh bolster the home front and to get people up and you know excited to buy war bonds and all that stuff and just that hollywood personification of what a marine would be to the people in america but yeah i was just you know i don't know i was just a little a little surprised when i, I came across that paragraph because i like i said i've read a lot of pto books and that was the the first real thing i came across you know, in, in your experience, 
hosting a podcast. How long has your uh, War Stories podcast been around, Preston? Started, um, let's see, going on two years ago, I think. About 18 months now, something like that. And so, yeah, so you basically right around the beginning of uh, COVID is when you really dug into it heavily? Yeah, started in June of, uh, it was in June, so I guess it probably was June of 2020. Yeah. I was watching your, your recent stuff on TikTok and you know, it's always funny. People are like, what's D Day stand for? And they're always so disappointed. Oh, it just stands for day or hour. And then obviously the one about the barrage balloons, which, you know, I never really thought about. Somebody asked you, well, how come they didn't use barrage balloons that much in a PTO? Which I never really think about because when you see D Day, you see them in Normandy, they're all over the damn place, but you rarely see them. And you you had an interesting aspect that for some reason the, the division that was kind of in charge of that they really weren't shipped out to the Pacific until near the end of forty five. But it wasn't new technology. Yeah, right? it wasn't some innovative thing. There's no re- I can't imagine the U.S. only had one battalion that did that. And you know a lot of times I'm fortunate that if I put out a question something like that, somebody in the comment section is a lot smarter than me. <laughs> in this case, at, at you know as of now it's been eight hours or something, nobody has been able to provide a really good answer as to why there's like one or two cases of garage blue Pacific when there were dozens of landings. You know, I interviewed the art, uh, the archivist for the Goodyear corporation. And I kind of just assumed that they probably helped provide that. No, <laughs> they were making uh, tank parts and all kinds of stuff, but I really thought sure. that he would, Oh yeah, we provided all the barrage balloons. No, not so much, but you know, that's just one of those, and that's kind of the thing I find interesting about World War II and some of the stuff we try to bring on here. Um, before the show, I was talking to Jeff about how I had Jay Murray on, and we did a full episode on M1 helmets. Um, I had some of the historians over at the Springfield Armory site talking about how George Washington actually chose this site for the Springfield Armory and how they the, all their contributions throughout the history of the United States with the guns they developed. I've actually tried to reach out to Hershey Company, try to get somebody on here from Hershey to talk about their their contribution to the war. And it's just those those little things that we don't really think about that you never really see covered, as we said before on History Channel back when they did history, that I find kind of piques people's interest because a lot of this stuff's been covered ad nauseum. And I try to find just the little things like, you know, the barrage balloons and this and that that, you know, aren't covered that much, but we're getting so far from that point in time that the people who could answer the question of why there was only one major battalion, they're getting harder and harder to find. Yeah, there's, there's so much content out there on this stuff. You know, the, the even a six-hour special on D-Day probably didn't cover the barrage. Yeah, so there's so much other stuff to get into that there's all these little details that are missed that, you know, it doesn't, maybe the barrage, I don't know if it's a great example or not. Is it the most important part of history? Probably not. Um, but it's it's there. It's interesting. It's unique. And there's there's just so many of those um, when you're talking about a global war for six plus years. Right? Well, something as simple as a barrage balloon. Because I remember, God, probably about eight years ago, I was looking. I was like, what the hell were those for? And what did they do? And the Army being the Army and the whole aspect of keep it simple, stupid. Well, how do you prevent people from strafing our, our uh, beaches and our ships? Well, you tie a three-aught cable to a balloon and you fly it over and and hopefully if they do attempt it you rip off a wing and it's like well that's simple and effective but it's it's those little things that you see something like that and like it's basic and kind of dumb but why why is that what's bothering me right now why does that make me want to run to google and do all the research on something that simple and i find it's the little things like that that might you know grab someone's attention and and make them do more research than they would on a normal day yeah, I was going to kind of tack on to that about, you know, the answer is probably in the question, what are barrage balloons for? Well, that's what they were for. And the reason they probably weren't used heavily in the Pacific is there just wasn't enough of a threat. I mean, just thinking about long before we made the first offensive, the fleet carriers were completely knocked out. So where's your next closest besides the aircraft that was stationed or trying to keep them down in the, in the Solomons? Where were some of the closest islands? There just wasn't enough numbers, I don't think. You know, I, I think from from what I've learned that the, the the only way the Pacific offensive was going to be successful is to have complete control of the sea and the air before we could ever touch the land. And you know, that was what we were trying to do in Europe. 
and it took a little while. You know, those sub pens were pretty important that we kept plastering to no avail uh, in the early part of the bombing campaign. But, you know, eventually we whittled it down. Uh, we had to completely try to, you know, we had to take out the Luftwaffe so we could really start hitting places like Regensburg and Schweinfurt and Dresden and places like that. So it took time. Um, but in the Pacific, when it was so remote, the distances in between were, yeah, that aircraft may get here, but yeah. it get home. So, and without a carrier, uh, where is the threat from the air? And, and I think that was really taken into consideration uh, when, when most of the time, you know, before the offensive was drawn up. And, um, you know, just to think that the Army made about 50 D-Day invasions just in the Pacific theater alone, 50 islands that nobody's ever heard of, you know, for the Japanese to cover that much airspace and then to be able to land and refuel again, I, I just don't see, to me, looking back, and I don't know, yeah. uh, I just don't see the need for battalions upon battalions of barrage balloon. I just don't see the threat there. And not only that, but, and that makes perfect point. And plus, when you're traveling that far, in Europe, you had a short little trip over the English Channel. From here, as we all know, um, room on the ships for material. I mean, do you want 50 crates of barrage, barrage balloons or do you want extra crates of ammunition and uh, K-Rash? And so they probably said, eh, I don't think Louis the Louse in uh, Washington, uh, you know, the washing machine <laughs> Charlie is going to be, you know, affected by these barrage balloons. So let's not waste <laughs> the space and uh, let's allocate some more room for food and uh, some boondockers. And uh, maybe let's get some compression helmets down there because all the uh, holly liners are rotting away in the tropical sun. So maybe let's better utilize our space. Yeah. That's my opinion. I don't know. I never dug into it enough. Preston, we talk on this podcast, um, especially when it comes to like uh, Henry, who's in the cold area. I'm down here in Florida. The weather never changes. It, it worse, it gets down to the 40s every once in a while. But he kind of talks about how with the change of the weather comes his um, desire or leaning towards the subject matter in which he he um, reads up on, i.e. in the wintertime, he's yeah. more Battle of the Balls, more European theater, where when it's hot outside, it's it's more PTO stuff. When it comes to planning for your show and um, or just the subject matter that grabs your interest at that particular time, how do you go about it? Are you swayed by just things you come across, or you just does it come to you in the middle of your sleep? Like, oh, what about that? Shotgun blast, man! I'm I'm listening to a book now um, called "On Desperate Ground" about the uh, Chosen Reservoir. Okay, so there's probably going to be a handful of stuff about. Korean War right now, just because as you're going through it, you're like, that is an interesting little piece here or there. Um, a lot of it comes from comments, questions. Uh, I'll see people debating things that maybe sometimes if there's just a lot of debate back and forth, like, hey, that's something people are interested in. Let's talk about that. Um, other times I'll see people are, for whatever reason, not correct on something, but kind of hammering at home. Like, all right, well, there's something to talk about. Uh, that's definitely a video, maybe a podcast. When it comes to the podcast, it's a lot more, not opportunistic, um, but it's just when we, when we find the right person, we don't necessarily have a theme to those monthly or weekly. We just, uh, we schedule people a couple months out and see what works and, and sort of like that. But TikTok videos, it's by the day. That's a that's a big that's a huge commitment to keep those videos going to stay on the for you page and then just sticking with the algorithm. It's constantly changing. And with the content in which you do, it's like, well, there may be something you want to cover, but you know the community guidelines are like, no, we're not we're not going down that rabbit hole. Because we just got off a of Facebook suspension. We uh we got our hands slapped because I had the audacity to post a picture of a guest who is a former Marine. He is a um, author. He reproduces German paperwork for Hollywood. He has a book on all about German paperwork. He is a, a graphic designer by trade. And I posted a picture on our What's the Scuttlebutt Facebook page, which is a group you have to join. It's a page entirely about World War II, but because he was in his SS officer's uh, uniform with the swastika on it, um, they dinged us and they buried our content and they uh, killed our live streams for 25 days. And so it's like that's... It, it, and it's like this is history, and that's it's 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 sad and kind of scary the fact that when you're talking about history, you got to take you got to keep that in the back of your mind. It's like, do I just say the hell with it, and what happens happens, or do I want to censor history so that I don't upset the social media overlords? I don't think you have a choice, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that's what kind of the problem is. I've 
from experience on TikTok, I can't say Hitler. I can't say Nazi. Um, I've seen other people be able to do it, um, but I've gotten my hand slapped for that. So I'm just not going to try it again. I had, um, I had a video taken down for simply showing I, I, I in my corner here, I, whatever impression I did at the last World War II event in order to air out my uniform because I don't wash them, I put them on a mannequin. I call Steve here in a podcast studio. And after a Marine Corps event, I just did a TikTok where I pulled my K-Bar out of the sheath, just so, showed the K-Bar logo and made and all, you know, where it was made and put it back in the sheath. That thing was up for a minute and a half before it was taken down for community guidelines. I wasn't pretending to stab anybody. I wasn't throwing it at my drywall. I literally just pulled it out of the sheath, showed the logo, slid it back in, and that's all it took. I don't know. I um, <laughs> I think podcasts are generally looser. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. I think that's a positive. I haven't had any problems on YouTube. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's like Japan's Unit Seven Thirty One deserves a lot of attention. Um. And it's the kind of thing where you can't tiptoe around that one. If you tiptoe around that unit, it loses all its meaning. It, it was so, you guys all know, it was so graphic and so inhumane that to say that they committed atrocities and move on is, is like barren. Yeah. So I don't know what the solution is. What? So um, you're currently reading a uh, the Korean War book. What was it called again? On desperate ground. On desperate so ground. So focused, focused in and around the chosen list. Who's the author on that? Hampton Sides. Hampton Sides. I'll have to look into that. Uh, Henry, this is be a good time to go into the part of our podcast where we talk about the current books we're into. What project are you currently reading or getting into or wrapping up for that matter? I just uh, started Richard Frank's Tower of Skulls. What's the um? I finished up Samuel Elliott Morrison's Volume Four called "See Midway and Sub Actions" and started Richard Frank's book. What's uh, and it's it is a history of the East, or history of the Asian Pacific War from 1937 to 1942, and it's it's going to be a trilogy. So this is Volume One. He's working on Volume Two. Okay, so this book just came out then. Yeah, well, year year or two ago. It's fairly new. Gotcha, Jeff. Uh, yeah, so reading right now, um, Bomber Boy. Well, you guys know my theme. Come on, it's gonna have to have a B seventeen on the cover, you know, right now. But uh, yeah, Bomber Boys, really cool. It's it's actually um, kind of a, a, a novice author. Uh, I think his brother is a little bit more uh, popular than than, than Travis is. Um, but came across uh, a guy that was his landlord that happened to be a, a navigator. And uh, I think the three, uh, 305th bomb group and got wrapped up in a little reunion. And right there at this little town in Connecticut, there was a half a dozen or so guys that had served in the mighty eighth and um, didn't necessarily know each other then, but kind of got together for kind of a mighty eighth breakfast, you know, once a month or something. And he got to pull four really uh, good stories from, from some of these guys, uh, their experiences, um, so that's the book now. And so if, if one of our former guests that I've been talking to almost daily, Mr. Leighton Hughes over there in the UK, uh, there's another book to add to your list, buddy. Um, and then as far as projects, uh, man, it really goes with the theme that we're talking about tonight with these little niches in history. Uh, and, and Don and, and Henry, you guys know, I kind of gave you a little news flash uh, from the latest uh, film fest over the weekend. Walking Point won Best Veteran-Themed Film at our very last uh, Film Fest. We were done on that circuit. That was a two-and-a-half-year ride that was amazing. Almost three years now. Uh, but well, getting 20, wrapped up 2021 the, didn't count. Co I mean, exactly. Poor, poor, J poor Black 17 Productions. They put out this yeah. great short film. It really started yeah. gaining steam in 2019, and then here comes COVID, and just completely. Oh, wow. I mean, you put that time, energy, and effort where you're you're filming this short film in two different states over all this time, and then, yeah. and not only just them, but everybody in that film circuit at that time, just the whole year just gets erased. Yeah, it's you know it's tough to complain of because we had a really good run, won a lot of awards, um, and and even the ones, even the film fest that were virtual, like we did one, um, RJ and I, we we zoomed in for uh, one of the the GI film fest in San Diego, I think it was, and you know I mean it, it, you do the best you can, and uh, there, there's nothing to complain about there, but uh, linked up with a guy, and I don't want to give too much away, but I did tell you guys that uh, uh, I'm getting wrapped up in and doing a short film now about um, the Eureka 
beacons used during D-Day. And I, you know, the guy came up to me and said, you know, hey, I want you to be a part of this. You know, I heard, you know, and I'm like, okay. Don't have to and twist when my he arm. said that, I was like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the Eureka beacon. What the heck are those? <laughs> you know, it was like, I tell him, I said, I'm embarrassed. I, I, I don't know. I said, can you Amazon.com, books on the Eureka <laughs> beacon, one order, 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 order. Yeah, I but, can help uh, you with that. Actually, yeah, I found a really cool, I think it was an Air Force article uh, written five, six, seven years ago. The technology that came out of that is still being used on on the battlefield today for IFF and things like that. And it's just incredible because I think our, the audience will appreciate this, that it was only about 25% of, of the Airborne was these catastrophic misdrops. And that typically doesn't fit well with the narrative of Hollywood in Band of Brothers. You're saying, right, right, oh, there's misdrops all over Normandy. Yeah, yes, but that was actually the minority. They're, they estimate about 75% of the guys landed within a mile of their DC, and it was because of these beacons, this radar, high-tech equipment, that they have, they fit a, a big radar pod on the nose of these C-47s with a big, like a, a big antenna, I guess, almost around down the length of the fuselage, almost the tailwheel. They sent in a group of Pathfinders, a very specialized trained group of guys, the night before mm -hmm. the invasion. And it just so happens that the aircraft that led this raid is stationed with Commander of Air Force about an hour from me in San Marcos. Nice. So he's already made contact with them. So we've got the aircraft used, the flight tower. We're probably going to use some of uh, the footage or uh, film some of it at my museum in this runway and with some of my contacts with some airborne guys. So be looking for that short film, indie film kind of thing. But man, it's such, it's a story that's so worth telling. Yeah. I don't think I Pathfinders mean, just, and the effort that they did, I mean, to, like you said, you parachute in 24 hours in advance. I remember reading one story where they basically said, okay, there's a church tower. That's a perfect spot for this beacon. So they put it up there, but then you basically got to guard that location for 24 hours with what, five to eight people at, at the most. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And that's why it's kind of neat because, you know, and and even in the, in the scout world, you know, what I was involved in in the Army, looking back at like, you know, um, the Alamo Scouts and units like that, it, it's obscure, but it's obscure for a reason. Like, you know, like, there's no photographs of these pathfinders before they jumped in at D-Day because OPSEC, I mean, you just couldn't. So it's kind of fun now as things have, of course, been declassified and all it takes is a Hollywood film to, you know, to, to cover something. And then all of a sudden it's, it's crazy famous. Everybody knows about it, but so I'm really, I'm really excited about this new project. It's going to be really cool. It'd be interesting to see what sort of technology of the time that the transponders, let alone the receivers on the planes, but there's transponders, what, you know, they had to run off of probably rudimentary battery packs. I mean, we know that the field phones basically ran off of D-Day batteries at the time. Um, it'd be interesting to see how many of those actually broke during landings and how many, you know, out of all the ones that were deployed, how many actually survived and actually were activated to bring in the planes? Yeah, that's a good point. I think there was only about 30 C-47s that were outfitted with the equipment as these lead aircraft to kind of guide everybody. Kind of like, you know, late air war, you just have the one, the lead bombardier, lead navigator, and then everybody just... Hopes he don't get shot up. down. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, and then, yeah, there was another series of equipment that I think was stationed in England that also would send a message and measure by the time it came back, kind of like how we measure space now. And and uh, apparently it was fairly accurate. And like I said, I mean, this is really interesting technology that was also used in Market Garden and uh, when they jumped into to southern France and Italy. And it, so it was, it was actually, you know, not just like a fly by the wire um, you know, let's see if this works kind of kind of thing. I mean, it's just it's just amazing. I've never heard of this before. I mean, I'm not I don't know everything, but that's just like I said, it's just a story that needs to be told. And that's why I told the guy putting this together, like, dude, well done. Well done, man. You're you're gonna get a lot of people interested in this. So I'm excited to be a part of it. Now you sent me a, a text message the other day because on this podcast, I'm sure Preston knows a lot of people who are feeling the same way. We've been waiting forever and years for the new Tom Hanks Air Corps yeah. show to come out. Yeah. And now they're announcing it's a Disney Plus, and you're like, no, no, Wait, not what? Disney Plus, not it, Disney Plus. Um, isn't Apple. it Apple? Apple? Apple, same difference. It's Whatever, still yeah. on a streaming <laughs> service that a quarter of the pop, less than a quarter of the population has. 
It's kind of like the uh, Tom Hanks submarine movie that no one ever saw because it's on a streaming service. Right. Kind of like the uh, remake of The Right Stuff that I did some background work and that no one saw because it was on a streaming service. When we actually shot that show, it was supposed to be on the Smithsonian Network, which everyone would have had access to. But yeah. I, I get it. They buy out those properties, kind of like HBO did with Band of Brothers. But HBO was still something that's more accessible. You, you know, everybody's, everybody's done that, whether it's Band of Brothers or Ray Donovan. You call up your cable company. You enable that service long enough to watch those twelve episodes, and you cancel it. But I mean, the, HBO walked away from Masters of the Air. It, it's been a while. I, I mean, I'm yeah, a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the five hundred some odd million dollar budget they've got. Now, I will tell you this, and I think this is what that series will have going for it. And, and it, this may be a little fickle, but one of the leads, because it's going to follow. If 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 any of our listeners have read Masters of the Air, it's a must read. Um, and that's what the series is based on. And it really mostly revolves around two particular buddies in the Bloody Hunter Thumb group with the same nickname, Buddy Cleveland and Buddy Egan, or Bucky. Bucky Cleveland and Bucky Egan. <laughs> Best friends with the same stupid nickname, um, but they're kind of the two leads. Well, one of the guys that's cast for uh, the lead part, he's got a movie coming out in June that is really going to excite a whole other demographic. And I'm excited about because I'm a big Elvis fan. So this kid, uh, his name is uh, Ashton Butler, I think, is cast as Elvis in this upcoming series. Now this is the now, and Tom Hanks <laughs> plays Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker. So if you can imagine Tom Hanks fat and bald and Norwegian, <laughs> that's the part he's that's the part he's going to have to play. And this was the one that was filmed in Australia when Hanks had gotten COVID. So, so they filmed Elvis the, comes out in June. So they filmed and, they filmed the movie in Australia where Tom Hanks plays Colonel Tom Parker, who convinced Elvis never to leave the continental United States because he couldn't leave because he didn't have a passport. Bingo, bingo! <laughs> but a lot of people are going to fall in love with this kid that's playing Elvis, and if he's the lead in this new series, hopefully he will pull people to this series that would be like masters of the air like who cares so if but, he's in a b-17 we're all going to bomb germany right <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're gonna get all shook up baby <laughs> Preston, i don't want to put you on the spot but because we're talking movies and we have an ongoing inside joke here what is your opinion of a thin red line <laughs> oh, <come on. laughs> all right let's do it jeff, jeff i did not bring this up <laughs> that's true i re-watched it about six months ago for the first time in a long time okay because I had, I'm trying to read facial expressions right now. I'm not doing a good job. Um, I remembered liking parts of it and thinking that it was really deep and wanting to go back and watch it again. I didn't really like it the second time around, or not second time around, but most recent. I just wasn't into it. I couldn't tell what the heck was happening. Um, where were they? Like it was supposed to be Guadalcanal, I think. It wasn't. They were just wandering off, and I don't know. I well. You're you're among the majority here. Me and Jeff are not big fans. Henry kind of Henry still stands by it. I was the hey. same way. You hold on, Henry. I I didn't understand it back in the early two thousands when I didn't know anything about World War Two. But now that I know a lot about the PTO, I went back and watched it about three months ago, and I came on here and said I have a little bit more respect than I did then. But I think the problem is with it that it's almost an insider's movie. If you don't know anything, well, actually, not even anything, if you don't know a shit ton about Guadalcanal and the Army's contribution to it, that you just, it's not for you. And even though I know a lot about Guadalcanal, I'd still, I would still give it 38% on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, wasn't it, it was, they, they were Army. Correct. Yes. It was an Army unit. But it was it's, very, it's but it was very early. I, I, I remember having the impression that it was in like the first few weeks of Guadalcanal and the army. No, it's, there. it's no, because remember Travolta says the Marines have done their job. Now we do ours. Gotcha. But right. to, to Preston's point, that goes to show you how it's almost like a lot of the explanation was left in the editing room. Like maybe this thing was like a three hour Epic and they just start chopping it down, but, you know, because for the first 10 minutes, you got the, uh, the two cats who are kind of a wall with the native village and you really don't understand what's going on. It's like, there's some relatively modern music. You got some half naked kids running around and some weird. Na and the narration was just like Nick Nolte's narration. sounded like he had a mouthful of rocks through the whole damn thing. You couldn't understand what was going on. 
you know, especially after they came out with Pacific and there's one or two episodes that really dive into the opening weeks, at least at Guadalcanal, mm-hmm. I'll take I'll, now, like that's my Guadalcanal scene and movie now. I mean, Guadalcanal Diary with Richard Jackal filmed in like 1943 did a better job than, I mean, and they, you know, during the war, having used SNJs as Japanese Euros did a better job at Guadalcanal. Okay, SNJ. Henry, you can defend your, 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 your beloved on, thin red John line now. didn't even like it. He was the same way. I, I didn't even bring this up, guys. I mean, <laughs> look, I, okay, I'm going to say it again. Okay. Give me what you already have. 10 reasons, 10 things you didn't like about it. I will agree with every one of them. But I hated it when I first saw it. What I do like about it is it's got some cool music, which Hans Zimmer did it. <laughs> he did the soundtrack for the Pacific, which I loved, obviously. And it was also really? a lot of really You're now. a fan of the Pacific? Well, wait a minute. Now you weren't at the time. <laughs> You've came around on it. <laughs> Oh, we've had that. Oh, come on. I love it, guys. But, but no, I mean, a lot of it was filmed on Guadalcanal. I mean, I, that, that's oh, yeah. compelling in and of itself. But, you know, yeah. When, oh, I'm not even going to go back into it. We've, we've discussed it. You know, in Henry's defense, I today was looking up, I Googled, like, top 100 military movies or something like that. I was, I was doing a short video for recommended movies and needed just a list to look off of. Kind of thing. Thin Red Line is consistently in the top 10 or 15 of a lot of people's lists. But I think guys are critics, and they're just in love. I mean, that had a heavy cast. I mean, you had everybody and their grandmother who were A and B listers <laughs> in the early two thousands. I mean, the the we we forget about it now. But remember, right around the time that came out, um, remember Pay It Forward came out with, with the cat from um, I See Dead People. Um, the whole movie about instead of paying it back, you pay it forward. That movie blew up. Well, the guy who played the the um, the AWOL cat at the beginning, he was the lead role in that. And so, I mean, there was, I think a lot of that has to do with the critics just loving the cast more than the actual plot line. <laughs> um, but I mean, when it comes to that movie list, where do you, here's another one that I saw after I got into reenacting and living history. Where does the longest day fall on that list for you? I really like the longest day. I, th- I I know there's. I feel like the better and better movies get with effects and and realism. Like even Saving Private Ryan with that shaking camera, mm-hmm. making it feel like you're running with them. The more of those we see, the harder it is for me to watch some of the older movies. Um, I really like the longest day because I felt like it showed so much. My biggest complaint about that is if you know nothing about World War II, you thought every single infantryman was armed with a Thompson. Because I think the only person who had an M1 was in that was John Wayne, and he used it as a crutch. Everyone else was armed with a Thompson. It just hit a lot. What's that, Jeff? What was that, Jeff? The the Thompson just wasn't long enough for him to use it as a crutch. But well, I was I, obviously they filmed them black and white, so they use all the ar- old archival footage. But I actually looked. I was like, well, when was that filmed? Was that filmed during Vietnam? And were all the M ones were all the M ones being used in training for Vietnam? I, I just couldn't figure out why they could only find one M one for that entire movie. But uh, uh, no, I, I mean I have to look that up. I thought it was 1960, and and by then the army had long adopted M 14s Yeah, you know what's lived on from that movie for sure is the idea of the. Um, bolt imitating the, the cricket yeah yeah i still get the, comments about that yeah. oh the m1 the, the, the germans hear the no not with the amount of gunfire maybe if you're one yeah. person shooting in the middle of the night but i mean anybody who's who's even done living history where you've heard you know 30 rifles going off at one time you don't hear that ping you barely hear the one coming out of your rifle let alone the one 50 yards away on the other side of the battlefield so yeah that's that's one that lives on quite a bit. Oh, you just, they would, they would drop it on a rock so that the uh, Germans thought they were reloading. And when they, no, <laughs> they didn't hear it. it's, it's not, it's not the case. Yeah. But you know, those are the, those are the fun things that we, we get to deal with from time to time. So uh, what's your uh, next episode on your podcast? War Story is going to be about, do you have that one planned out yet? Or you just get one in the can? 
Yeah, so the one that went up today was with a gentleman named Norm Bendixson. Uh, Norm was a special forces medic in Vietnam in 1964. So he was in Vietnam in a little special forces camp on the Cambodian border when the Gulf of Tonkin incident went down. So we talked about all this training, volunteering to go over there. He didn't know hardly what special forces were when they were recruiting for it. He was going to be a infantryman, paratrooper, and uh, these special forces guys came around with these fancy green berets. And he said, I'll give that a try. So great, really humble guy. You know, the, the kind of stories where um, I didn't do anything special. I'm not anyone special. Didn't do anything unique. <laughs> one of the small groups of SF in Vietnam before the escalation, you know? Um, and we've got two more coming out in the next couple of weeks. Talked to a nice young lady out of uh, Reading, Massachusetts, who is not really affiliated with the military at all. Uh, she's in college, not a veteran herself. And she's been documenting the stories of Reading, Massachusetts veterans from World War II. So digging deep into the archives and telling family stories that the family members haven't even heard. Um, you know, there's like 5,000 people in that town during the war. So they had 700 people in the war. One of those wow. crazy, you know, everybody's doing something. Um, and then in a couple of weeks, so that one will go out mo next Monday and the following Monday, a uh, gentleman who was infantryman in Vietnam was a point walk point, um, in and around fire support base ripcord, the 101st airborne 1970. So talked about what the heck that was like walking through the jungle. I can only imagine. I mean, I, I got a friend in the uh, reenacting community. He was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and he got shot down three different times. And, um, cause he was just constantly going in and he, he would tell, he tells these stories about how, you know, fragment came up through the bottom, went through his leg and, you know, he's basically out in the jungle for four days trying to hide and survive until he got rescued. And it's just, I couldn't even begin to imagine being in that situation let alone trying to survive wounded in in a hot humid jungle with insects and natural things trying to kill you let alone enemies hunting you down and trying to kill you if not capture you and do worse things than kill you a lot of those guys a lot of really cool stories that they're um you know haven't necessarily shared before I, i've seen that a lot um that we're interacting with are feeling more comfortable talking about it now um, in the right context, in the right environment. But, you know, we, we I don't know, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. We group all of Vietnam into search and destroy missions for Viet Cong. And it was such an incredibly complex war. We talked, to, well, the guy at Fire Sport Base Ripcord, they weren't dealing with Viet Cong. It was uniformed NVA in 1970. They were fighting a, you know, close to a peer force. And we just don't think about that in the Vietnam War. I don't, at least. So it's been a lot of fun talking to those guys. I don't think you're an average, even myself, even though I don't do a lot of studying on Vietnam, I don't think your average everyday contemporary could even tell you what a NVA uniform looked like. We were just used to seeing the ragtag, you know, assembled out of whatever they could find. I couldn't even I couldn't even sit here and even begin to imagine what a, a issued, accurate uniform looks like. Because that's not something we talk about. Khaki. I'll go with khaki, red star. Um, I don't think there's a lot of pictures. A lot of the pictures, um, when you look up North Vietnamese units, it's, it's black and white. Um, I'm not so sure we have access to um, all, all of their photos, if you will. Speaking of M1s, that the, the photo you posted, because on your TikTok you were posting a preview of that episode, and you posted a picture of him with the grenade launcher and then a picture of him standing around some of the troops they were training. And it stood out to me that all the... Um, the Vietnamese troops that he was training, they all had M1 slung over their shoulder and they're all wearing like M43 uniforms from World War II. It's like, so that's where all our old stuff went. Yep. <laughs> no different, right? We, My unit just recycled all of our M16s in the Army Reserve and kind of wonder where those are going to go. Um, I'm sure there's some uh, under-equipped force somewhere in the world that's going to be using old Army M16s for a while. Yeah, all the old beat-up ones. Um, so you are, you're active, you're still active reserves, right? I am, yeah. And so what's that schedule like? How often you you got to go out and meet those requirements? Once a month? Once every two months? Once a month. Not not too bad. It's uh, in a training unit right now, transitioning to another training unit. But, um, you know, 
two to four days a month on average, Thursday to Sunday most, and then two weeks, two to three weeks in the summer. So it's not too hard to schedule around, but, you know, good people, fun people to be around. For the people you know who are actively serving, um, with what's going on in Ukraine, have you seen anything kind of like picking up in the scheduling of, uh, you know, training and things like that? Um, I'm not too tied in with, with the training schedules of all those guys and, and what they're ramping up or not ramping up to do. And the handful of friends I have that are in the know are not not talking about they're it. They're not at liberty so, to, to, yeah. to say they're in the know. But it's it's no different than anything else. There's certainly, of course, there's plans. Of course, there's preparations at some level. Some degree. Well, what struck me as crazy is well, I think two weeks ago they activated a part of the, was it the 82nd or the 101st? I think it was the 82nd Airborne. And I'm thinking, well, they're they're saying they're sending them over there for strategic defensive, but we all know airborne units are not static defensive troops. They're meant for, you know, being deployed in certain areas, capturing certain things, and then letting people who are trained to be static defensive troops in. So, and but, and I, I was talking to somebody because I do computer work, and I was talking to a guy who's a private investigator, and we we're this was like two weeks ago, and we're like. You know, a lot of the stuff Putin's saying is is very, you know, a lot of the stuff they're doing is very similar to how World War II started with, you know, the the false flag stuff. And now I'm actually starting to hear talking heads on the media saying the same thing. It's like, well, some of this stuff looks awfully familiar what we experienced with how World War II started. It's just like, and like today, I guess he came out and said, well, you know, I we're not going to invade Ukraine, but we do recognize these two areas as being independent states now. So now they're really changing things up. Say, like, okay. We're uh, really uh, drawing straws now. So it's it's interesting to see where this is going to go. I think it's interesting to see. If, if it's really hard to make a comparison right now to anything because it's so confusing. As mm-hmm. what's every, every country has their own spin. And I can't collect me, whether it's extreme or, or just a little bit. So trying to figure out exactly what is happening is, is incredibly challenging in the moment. But it makes me think of how previous conflicts have started. And we look back at the start of World War One and say, well, look at all the pieces are moving. And at the start of World War Two, you can see it, right? You know, how did nobody else see this coming? And of course, this is what's going to happen. But here we are today watching these tensions escalate and nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. And you can see how if the U.S. sent six brigades in on the border, that'd be provoking. <laughs> that might start something. We don't want to do that. So it's interesting to try to, think of what this might have been in the past if that makes sense yeah it's just uh i don't know it's just like every day it's just like oh here we go here we go with this soap opera that's going on over there and just <laughs> it's like can't you just you know back out and let's just continue dealing with all the other drama going on in the world right now do we really need this but i guess it remains to be seen have you been keeping up on that at all jeff or henry at all in a cursory yeah. way. Yeah. Just headlines. Yeah. I mean, of course, I know I still have some buddies, you know, still in uniform. And so I keep up for, for that sake. And I just, a good reenactor buddy of mine who's a reservist just got orders. He was, he was about ready to come off active duty deployment and, and uh, buy a house in San Antonio and hang out with his daughter. And, and uh, now got orders to, to go uh, to, to Europe. Uh, not gonna say where, but uh, yeah. I mean, Preston, you bring up a good point. I mean, it, you know, you start seeing, you start seeing the moves on the chessboard, and anybody that is familiar with history kind of picks up on these things. We're a little more sensitive to it, uh, and um, you know, I don't really listen to a whole lot of what the media says or whatever. But I, I had heard somebody had repeated that. Oh, somebody said that. Oh, war, war is imminent. You know, war is imminent now because of these these moves that we're just like guys this is the united states of america war has been imminent since we have been a country and i think once the american people realize that you know we're really good at dying for other countries and uh, that's just how we are and that's just what we need to get used to so until larger countries in europe that are more than capable uh germany uh, poland until you know they they start really kind of rallying their troops over there uh to protect the resources that are coming out of the Ukraine that they badly need that we probably don't want to just send over to the Russians. Um, 
you know, we're going to have to step in. We always are, are the ones that kind of big brother got to step in. We let kid brother get beat up on the playground for a little bit. And then, okay, that's enough. Now let me take care of business. You know, that's just kind of always been, it seems like that's always been our posture. And, you know, talking about World War II, I think it's ironic that uh, not that long ago, Americans were um, giving up their citizenship to fight for the Chinese to stave off the Japanese empire. And uh, we were having to buddy up with the Russians to make sure yeah. uh, Hitler was kept in check. And here we are. It's the opposite thing that's happening. We're having to pair with the Japanese to keep the Chinese at bay. And we're having to pair with the Germans to keep the Russians at bay. So I think George Santayana said it best, you know, for those who are not familiar with the past or are condemned to repeat it. So Well, and, and that's what I was going to kind of bring up is two things is one, all more you know, we used to hear that a lot growing up, you know, Henry and I, we heard that a bunch because of, you know, the generation before us and it, and, and it started to die out a little bit. We don't hear as much, which is if you don't learn from history, bound to repeat it. And, you know, it's all more <laughs> evidence of why you need to, you know, kind of like we're talking about with social media, trying to censor things that have to do with history. It's like, well, it, it's dirty. It has to be known or people forget these things. And, and the only way to prevent bad shit from happening again is to remind people of the bad crap that happened. Kind of like when they're tearing statues down on my other podcast, I made the jokes like, hey, you know, I get it. People want some of these statues down, but not every monument is a um, positive thing. Like when you go to Germany, you go to Auschwitz, that's not a monument celebrating the Holocaust. That is a reminder of bad shit that happens if we don't remember it. And so Instead of taking down statues, perhaps you just add one next to it saying, hey, this guy was a dick. Don't do what he did instead of tearing anything down. Because, you know, you used to hear about it in the mid-2000s where there's people already over in the Middle East saying, oh, the Holocaust never happened. That was made up. It's like, well, who's to say 80, 90 years from now, people will say well, Civil War wasn't that bad because, well, we're erasing all that. And just whatever, when it comes to history in general, that's all more reason why instead of censoring it and whitewashing it so that it doesn't hurt people's feelings, it's important whatever the history may be um, that we have to talk about it and not censor it so that we can remind people that horrible things happen by horrible people and the efforts and the amount of lives lost by good people to stop these horrible th things from happening and to prevent them from rehappening. And so, but yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it's crazy. All of history is nasty. I mean, you can't find a period of time where anything serious happened where there wasn't, atrocities, rapes, murders, civilians dying, like that's just history and it sucks sometimes, but it's everywhere. It's been in every country um, for forever. Um, we, we kind of, I think when we grow up in grade school and middle school, we pluck out the, the nice stories. Sure. Um, but history wasn't made with nice stories. And, made with the ugly stuff. and I, and I understand that, you know, elementary school. Okay. Well, wait, middle school, let's dip our toes a little bit, but you know, perfect example. Um, my 14 year old daughter, she really did not want to do Rand Frank homework. She just thought it was just annoyance. She, um, got one of her friends to do it. We got in a big debate about it. And, um, I was like, well, who was Anne? Cause she, Oh, I did the Anne Frank homework. Okay. Well, who was she? Um, I think she was Otto's wife. Okay, clearly you didn't do the homework. Otto was her dad, and she just had no interest in it. And I, I was making dinner, and I finally got a little, little bold with her. Um, my daughter's Hispanic, right? And so um, I told her, I said, Sariana, come here. Just stop for a minute. No, I said, let's have a serious d discussion of who Anne Frank was and why it's so important, and more importantly, why they teach at the middle schoolers, and that's because she was your age, and they want you to realize and they think that maybe you can relate because she was your age. I said, but could you imagine living in a world where a leader of your country said that because you're a Hispanic heritage that you have to be locked up and put away in camps? And we got into that whole discussion. And then once I explained to her who Anne Frank was, how the, why her family hid, her and her family hid up in the attic for two years and then someone sold them out and they went to concentration camps. Once I relayed that to her, she kind of was like, stunned and set back it's like well they're, that's why they teach it to you in middle school because she's your age and they want you to learn history for the whole reasons that we just said but it wasn't until i put it in terms that she could understand that she realized oh this isn't just a homework assignment just to give us make work to annoy us to, so we can pass exams this is important stuff and sometimes you kind of have to take the history out of the history and put it into terms they can understand in a modern term 
just so they can uh, disconnect from the kind of like we're talking at the beginning, you know, reading about stuff you have no interest in versus reading about stuff you do. And so sometimes you got to take the disconnect and reconfigure it just so they're, they have an interest and can relate in it a little bit. Well, now you know the challenge of the museum field. Exactly. You trying to get the, you know, the, the, the demographic that's your, your daughter's age mm-hmm. to be interested. How do we do that? How do we make that connection? How is this relevant? Uh, Preston's probably figured it out with TikTok. You, you probably have a lot of young followers um, because that's like you said, that's the platform they learn. Hey, <laughs> you know, let it, then we need to embrace that. Um, you know, and that, that's kind of always been a tough thing for, I think this particular period is guys, we like old stuff. So, because we like old stuff, we don't want to have to have a fancy website and TikToks and Instagram and all this other nonsense. But you have to be able to adapt to that to be able to target that audience because the demographic of people who care about this particular war is is fading. And a lot of times the greatest generation, and I've probably said this before, is a lot of times the silent generation. And it's not till he's gone that grandkids find grandpa's old, you know, trunk in the attic with a silver star and a purple heart. Wait, what? Grandpa did what? They want to talk about it. And uh, so now it's, it's too late for a lot of them. So um, I know we're probably about to wrap it up and talk all night about this, but man, Preston, just thanks for what you're doing, man. Keep it up. Such a, such a pleasure having you on here. Nice to meet you and ho- hope to see you again. And Well, before we wrap uh, it up, just to put a fine point on what Jeff was saying, because he works in the museum, I posted an open letter on the What's the Scuttlebutt Facebook and Instagram page that a fellow historian slash uh, she's retiring this year. She's a high school guidance counselor. And she was talking about how she's been doing this for years. And this year she took her home front impression down, did the thing at school, and they had some people come and talk about the Holocaust and all that. And the kids were polite they rudimentally pretend to pay attention but as jeff said they're just so disconnected because it's not on their phone it's not in a multimedia format and her whole thing was is as living historians dealing with trying to educate this new generation how do we change our presentation to garner their attention and to get them to tune in for a second you know 10 years ago just handing someone an n1 helmet was enough you know yeah and putting a heavy ass haversack on their back was enough. Now it's just like, huh? I declo- it's almost like there has to be an electronic connection. Without that, they just can't. You're, yeah, you're absolutely right. And you know, that, I see that. Obviously, I see it every day. I mean, I'm, I I don't work at a museum. I volunteer <laughs> to run a museum. Sure. But you know, I'm I'm, I'm a high school teacher. Well, it's still now, work, so, yeah, even though you volunteer. It. It's I a lot see of work. These kids uh, every day trying to keep them like, oh man, Mr. Cuff said it. That is so cool. You lost them. The six second attention span, it was like, that's it. It's a, you know, um, now that it's not talking bad about the new generation. It's just different. You know, at one time, there were guys sitting around going, I bet you that kid can't even make a shield out of bronze. <laughs> Golly, this new generation. He right? can't swing a mace to save his life. Yeah, I'm serious. I mean, that's just, that's yeah. how it was. Um, so it's just, it's evolution. So it it takes guys like us and and people like, uh, all of our listeners and followers and people who love doing living history, uh, to keep it alive. One of the uh, past guests we've had on a fellow historian, who's also a high school history teacher, what he would kind of do to make sure his students are paying attention when he'd do slideshows, he would take some of our living history or reenactment photos, put them in black and white and sneak them into the slideshow and then have a quiz at the end. Like, okay, how many of those photos were true to the era and how many are me and my friends at a reenactment from three years ago and more often than not they couldn't find the reenactment photos even though it's an hd button black and white versus the old grainy stuff and so that's just one of the things he would do to to try to keep his kids engaged in the assignment preston where can people find your podcast i assume you're pretty much on apple Podcasts, and and every location every other fine podcast is available apple spotify and youtube yes sir and what's your, do you have a, I'm sure you have a website too. What's the web address? We don't have a website, just send people to, uh, to YouTube. Everything's linked back. Fantastic. And as always, we will link a link to his YouTube on our what's the scuttlebutt.com. And, um, Jeff, you, uh, do you have any plugs or any projects coming up you want to get out, shed some light on? I think I plugged everything. Now we always have to save Henry for last because he's got like 38 things coming down the pike. So <laughs> Henry, what do you got going up, friend? All I'm going to say is uh, we happy few 506 podcast. I was pre-recorded last week with Matt 
Leach and Layton. That'll go up day after tomorrow. They're having me back on March 5th with Saul David because his book, Devil Dogs, which he asked me to write the foreword and, and blurb it, it's coming out in August, September. So Matt and Layton want to have him and me on there together. And then I got this. Can you see that okay? Yes, sir. World War II. What's the bottom, sir? Pacific War Memoirs. It's the Library of America. They added my dad's book into this trilogy along with two other memoirs. So it'll be in print forever. That's the Library of America thing we talked about. They're having a podcast with Richard Frank, 16 March. So, Don, I'll send you the graphics on that. We talked about it last week. So uh, that's, that's what's coming up with that. And as always, we want to thank everybody for hanging out with another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I do want to apologize. We got a little rough start at the beginning because we had some feedback and it was kind of confusing everybody with the latency. But it, it we picked up steam and we got the ball rolling here near the end. And I want to thank Preston Stewart and, as always, Jeff Copsetta and Henry Sledge. And as always, if you want to support the show, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that orange Patreon link. Sign up for Patreon. It's only a dollar a month if you kind of like us. And if you really like us, sign up for the Long Arms Deep Pocket Plan. That's the $7.50 a month plan. And after month two you'll get a free t-shirt we just sent some more of those out and do us all a big favor we finally hit the 1000 subscribers on youtube now we just got to get the hourly view requirements so if you want to go watch some of our past episodes or even just keep it on play on a tv in your kid's bedroom when no one's in there help us out that way so we can finally get through all the requirements from the fine people at youtube but uh for myself henry sledge preston stewart from the um War Stories Podcast and Jeff Copsetta. We want to thank everybody and we will talk to you all next week. And my dog is upset. She's like, dude, this podcast has been going on long enough. It's time to go. And so with that being said, thank you guys so much and we will talk to you soon. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 